Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. Today I am joined by Tara. Hello Tara. What's up guys? I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're discussing the films of Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis has been in the news lately for a unfortunate reason. He is retiring from acting due to a condition called aphasia, if I'm saying that correctly. I think that's right. Okay. From my understanding, it's a condition to where he has a hard time remembering or forming speech. We aren't the first to point this out, but it was noticed by some others, including Red Letter Media. They talked about how in some of the recent Bruce Willis movies, all of those straight-to-video movies he's been doing lately, you can see an earpiece. The speculation is that lines are being fed to him because he can't remember them anymore, which is super sad. That's actually really sad. And do we know when this first was noticed or was it something that was kind of gradual? It wasn't in all of his movies. Over the last year or so, some of the more recent titles, I believe, it was it was spotted. Redbox, Netflix. Oh, he has so many of them. He's done 40 movies in the last five years, something crazy how like do you that. Do, like, how do you physically do that? That is beyond working overtime every week. Bruce Willis has been known, even back in the days of the Expendables series, when he was in those, he refused to do part three because he wanted a million dollars a day. That is his cost. And so some of these low-budget movies that have a $2 million budget will spend $1 million on Bruce Willis, film all of his scenes in one day, and then put him on the poster because people want a Bruce Willis movie. And the reality is, is that Devin Sawa or Frank Grillo are probably the main characters in it. Not really a bait and switch, but it's definitely, hey, look at this really cool guy that you like, and he's in like 5% of the movie? It's a bit of a trick, kind of, not really. They know that people want a Bruce Willis movie, and if you are an independent film producer, putting Bruce Willis in your film guarantees that it comes out. No matter how bad everything else is, his face is going to sell the movie. Yeah, and if you look at the ratings on IMDb, these movies are not liked. They're not good, (laughs) but they come out. So he's doing this just for the, the payday? Now that we know what's going on, it's kind of sad, but before he was mocked endlessly for doing these stupid straight-to-red-box movies over and over and over again, but now we know, or at least it's said, that he was trying to make as much money as he could while he could still work. That's true. I mean, that is a lot more sad when you think about it, as opposed to, oh man, he's just churning these garbage movies out for no reason other than, I really want to have a whole bunch of movies with my face on the poster. Well, everyone wants to work and make money. Like, that's that's not news. When you say you're worth a million dollars a day and you're churning out just garbage after garbage movie, why would you be doing this when you're Bruce Willis? I'm thinking like Nick Cage or Wesley Snipes. Yeah, well, exactly. Most of the time when a famous actor is relegated to the doldrums of straight-to-video movies, (laughs) straight-to-video streaming or Redbox titles, you have names like Nicolas Cage who owed money to the IRS. You have people like Wesley Snipes who owed money to the IRS. You have John Cusack, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal who pump out these straight-to-video movies because they pay. Actors want to work. A lot of actors aren't actually rich and famous. We equate that phrase to them, rich and famous, but the reality is a lot of them are famous but not rich. So you have actors like Tom Jane, Thomas Jane from The Punisher and The Mist. He's a recognizable face and name, but he has never commanded huge paychecks. And he does a bunch of these trash straight-to-video movies like Money Plane. But Tom Jane still wants to work. Denise Richards still wants to work. These are people who we know, whose names we recognize. They're not A-listers. They're not A-listers. Bruce Willis is going to bring people in. Danny Bruce Trejo. Willis, absolutely. And Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo, his straight-to-video movies are really successful. It's a sad situation that Bruce Willis is in. We, of course, wish him well. He is a star. I have liked Bruce Willis my entire life. For a long number of years, people accused Bruce Willis 
including me, including, I said this, for many years, people accused Bruce Willis of being lazy and not caring because there came a certain point in his career where it seemed like he was bored all the time, kind of like Adam Sandler in a lot of his movies. Like he didn't really want to be there and he was just there to get the paycheck. Right. Like he's not trying. You watch Cop Out, which is <laughs> terrible, and he just looks like he doesn't want to be there. He has that same Bruce Willis smirk all the time. For a long time, it really seemed like he just wasn't into it anymore. And now that we know that maybe he had something else going on, mm -hmm. that's a little sad. And it doesn't make any of those movies better, but at least maybe we can take some of the blame away from him, maybe. They're it's, still not good movies and he's still not good in them. But it's understandable but it's as understandable. to why he was doing the movies. A lot of the actors and actresses we've grown up knowing have started to either go this way or have already gone this way. That's one of the weird things, though. Some actors do just stop working. We see fame and fortune and stardom as this thing to achieve when some of them just see it as acting. Anthony Hopkins famously once said that it's just a job. He doesn't care. I, <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name you know off the top of your head. The Obi-Wan Kenobi. What was his name? Alec Guinness? Al yeah. Hated everything with Star Wars. He did. Hated everything about it. He thought it was it. so stupid. Hated more than... And he's a cultural icon for his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi. People still know it and love it. But to him, it was a throwaway and he hated it. Some people don't want to do movies and some people want to work forever. Cameron Diaz retired. She hasn't done a movie in 10 years, something like that. Sandra Bullock didn't do a movie for five years or so before The Blind Side. Some of them want the work, and some of them probably definitely want the money. And so you have situations like Adam Sandler, where he does a movie like Pixels and just looks bored the whole time. And Bruce Willis did have a little bit of that that feeling. It seemed like he was bored in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years worth of his movies. Mm -hmm. And maybe he was. Maybe it's unrelated to what he's going through. But either way, it's the situation he is in now. It's unfortunate. I grew up with Bruce Willis. He was one of the mega stars of my life. He, Same here. He was one of those people like Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Other ones like Steven Seagal were kind of big for a little bit and kind of cloud bursted and were gone. Yeah, Steven Seagal and Van Damme had a three to four year period each where they were huge and then just immediate failure. And I think that's a lot of the later Bruce Willis stuff and some of his early stuff too. He is, you know, the, the badass guy. He's holding the gun. But when he lots starts, of cops, he plays lots of cops. But when he starts looking bored while he's doing it, mm -hmm. that's when you're thinking, hmm. When it seems like to you as a viewer that the actor you're seeing doesn't want to be in that film, you're not going to like the movie. Here's a million bucks. We got to get him done like today. There's no reshoots. And, you know, good for him. If he's able to earn those checks, why not? But today we're going to have more of an open conversation about his overall filmography. We will still end up with our three surviving films, kind of like we did in the Will Smith episode. When I was compiling this list, a couple of things stood out right away. One was that he has quite a few movies with numbers in the title, and not like sequels, but Fifth Element, Sixth Sense, Twelve Monkeys, Sixteen Blocks, <laughs> The Whole Nine Yards. And the other thing that kind of stood out was he starred with a lot of sitcom and TV actors, and I wonder if that has something to do with him starting in TV himself. Bruce Willis was a TV actor. He had a hit TV show called Moonlighting. It ran for four seasons. It was a romantic comedy show about private investigators. It was very popular, and that is what led to his film career. And then you have movies like Blind Date with John Larroquette from Night Court, Striking Distance where the bad guy is Frasier's dad, Jack Black shows up in The Jackal, Oh, Matthew Perry in The Whole Nine Yards. He works with a lot of other TV actors, and I don't know if that's just sort of residual effects of him being a TV actor himself, but a lot of people don't even recall that he was in television. When he was cast in Die Hard, that would be like Matthew Perry from Friends 
being cast in Die Hard in the second year of Friends. It was strange. It was very unusual. Nobody expected a sitcom actor. And, and although Moonlighting wasn't a traditional sitcom, but it essentially was. People didn't expect a sitcom actor to be in a violent, amazing, bloody action movie. They went after everybody else they could possibly get. So he was literally like the last person they yeah. asked. Die Hard, Die Hard famously started as a sequel to Commando. It was going to be Commando 2. It was for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Die Hard was originally offered, <laughs> and Tara, please don't blow out the microphone when I say this. Die Hard was originally offered to Frank Sinatra. I could see that. You can see a, a nearly 70-year-old singer in Die Hard as John McClane. Maybe not in his 70s, but... This, no, no, this, this was okay. 1980s Frank Sinatra, old blue eyes. I mean... Okay, you're very I'm, confused. I'm, I'm trying to like <laughs> imagine how that would look just on the movie poster. Die Hard was developed as a sequel to Commando, but because it's actually based on the book that is a sequel to a movie called The Detective starring Frank Sinatra, contractually, they had to offer it to him first. And then Schwarzenegger said no. And so when Schwarzenegger said no, they retooled it a little bit to where it was no longer a sequel to Commando. As far as the films today, though, we are going to preemptively eliminate the Die Hard films because those are discussed in an upcoming episode. We're also not including the M. Night Shyamalan movies because those were discussed in its own episode and we did both save The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. And we're also not going to include Pulp Fiction because I think Pulp Fiction is a masterpiece and it wouldn't be really fair to include it. Honestly, if we kept all those, Die Hard, Pulp Fiction, and Sixth Sense would probably be my three and that would make this boring. So I don't want to do that. So we are not including those. We are going to look at all of his other movies. Except for the 150 ones he did for Redbox, Netflix, and all those. Most of his better movies came out before 2006 or so. Probably his better later movies, I would say, are Red and Looper. Looper is incredible. I liked Looper. I don't know if I'm going to keep it, but it was a very interesting premise. And he's not phoning it in, so to speak. Everyone in the movie looks like they're actually having a pretty good time with what they're doing. I think it is a great, fantastic film. It's a little weird how they made Joseph Gordon-Levitt look like Bruce Willis with the makeup. They're not going to de-age Bruce Willis <laughs> like Will Smith and, gonna, and Gemini not, but, Man. But see, that actually would have been better to have Bruce Willis in Gemini Man because he is kind of different looking than how he was in Moonlighting, I guess. Between these two, I would cross off Red. It's fun. If you haven't seen Red, it has a very simple premise. Old people shoot stuff. That's actually a very good premise for a lot of uh, the target audience. Yeah, senior citizen action <laughs> movie. A big selling point in the trailer was Helen Mirren with the big old machine gun. <laughs> I don't remember the trailer well, at all. Yeah, that was a big selling point. And you had Morgan Freeman and John Malkovich and Bruce Willis. It's good. I like Red. If you haven't seen Red and you want a fun movie, that's a good word. It's that fun. sounds dismissive, though, doesn't it? I, a little bit? You beat me by one second. I was about to say that. <laughs> fun, fine, cute. I overuse those words. I know. I try not to. I need a better vocabulary. I know. It has a sense of humor about it. It runs with its concept. The action is stylized in a comical way. Looper, I am not crossing off yet. Also, real quick, I didn't make the joke. I was going to say at the start of this that we're going to talk about Bruno, even though the song says we don't talk about Bruno. And the reference being that Bruce Willis recorded some albums, some music albums under the name Bruno. And so if you want to watch Bruce Willis hamming it up on stage, I think he has a harmonica maybe. There are music videos. You can go on YouTube and look this up. That actually sounds kind of entertaining. Oh, he is not a good singer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy to cross over. Not everyone can be Will Smith and go back and forth between TV, movies, and music. Eddie Murphy has an album. Keanu Reeves has an album. Jared Leto has a band. 
Although his band is definitely more successful than the other people. Is that the 30 Seconds to Mars? Uh-huh. At least I've heard of them. And you know what? Here's the thing, though. It's not 30 Seconds to Mars. It's way further. <laughs> so no red. Old people firing machine guns will never not be funny. Looper was good, but it can't compare with some of the other ones on this list. So I'm taking them both off now. I'll talk very briefly about a couple of his early movies. Blind Date is one where it's just a date from hell. It's very sitcom-like. It was made by Blake Edwards, who has done some good things, but you watch it and it looks like a bad TV comedy. Bonfire of the Vanities was a notorious bomb with a horribly, horribly miscast Tom Hanks. The movie's been mostly forgotten. The title's really the only thing people remember and that it failed horribly. Bonfire of the Vanities has a book and even a documentary about how terribly the film performed and how bad that production was. It was a comedy by the director of Carrie and Scarface. <laughs> Wait, what? Was, did I misinterpret Scarface and Carrie that they were not comedies? That's funny. But that movie, Bonfire of the Vanities, was a notorious failure. And it was really the first time that Tom Hanks was sort of put in question as far as his bankability as a star. So this was right after Big. This was his, I'm an Academy Award nominee, and I'm going to do this movie based on a hugely successful Tom Wolfe book. And then the movie is just a disaster. But thankfully, only two years later, he bounces back with Philadelphia. Bonfire of the Vanity sucks. Philadelphia is great. Striking Distance is one of those cop movies that just blends together with all the other cop movies Bruce Willis did. It sounds like a movie that Steven Seagal was fighting to get into, you know? Striking Distance is about a former cop who is now a, like a river coast guard, whatever the term for a coast guard is, but in a river. He monitors a river. He drives around. He's like a boat cop. And Boat Cop? Has that been done a lot in movies? Dude, Boat Cop is a great title. (laughs) That's the title of a movie. But this action thriller with Bruce Willis, his partner is Sarah Jessica Parker? To see her in that role, it's very strange. And then when they make out and there's like a sex scene, uh, it's weird. That would at least make sense with, you know, him being a Boat Cop. Yeah, Boat Cop. We gotta look at Boat Cop. There has to be a Boat Cop movie. That is such a cool title. Bruce Willis also had Mortal Thoughts, and that was back when he and Demi Moore first got together, and so he was trying to support his new wife's career. He plays the abusive husband that gets killed in it, so it's kind of like a a small supporting role, but they want his name on the poster because he and Demi Moore were a tabloid couple. Mm. He has the most horrific goatee in it. He looks terrible. Watching Bruce Willis play a wife beater, I know it's acting and actors act, but man, that's not how I think of Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, in my mind, and I think in most people's minds, it's always been the... Maybe not exactly a cop, but Or someone. a good guy. Well, he did play the bad guy in The Jackal. He played a hitman who changes his identity. And then you have Richard Gere playing a former IRA sniper with an Irish accent. I find him. I'll find your killer. And it's, <laughs> oh man, it's so painful. Actors act, but after a while you do start to see certain people in certain roles and go, okay, that's kind of what He's we the see. hero. And that's fine. Yeah. And there is a point in casting against type. When you cast someone that you don't expect in a role, like when Keanu Reeves played a serial killer in The Watcher, that was actually kind of cool. Robin Williams in One Hour Photo. One Hour Photo. Oh, he was so good in that. That terrified me because I was like, this is Robin Williams. He's Mrs. Doubtfire. He's the genie from Aladdin. He's, you know, happy, cool dude. And he plays a bald, creepy stalker. Oh, man. I love that movie. Terrifying. Yeah. So there's a precedent for casting against type. So having Bruce Willis play this abusive character could have made sense somewhere. Back then, around that time, he also had Look Who's Talking, which is pretty good. Look Who's Talking opens with a sex scene, and then it cuts to the opening credits. You see the visualization of sperm swimming and running towards an egg and like racing towards it. And I was very confused as to how they did it. Now I know it's puppets, but you watch it, and it's really like they magically shrunk a camera, 
and are flying along with swimming sperm. It looks amazing. It However, does. I don't know if they used like Jim Henson's Creature Shop or what they did, <laughs> but it looks incredible. It's an incredibly made sequence. And it was very confusing as a child because I didn't know what it meant. Yeah, I, I will say, look who's talking, not talking about the sequels, but... Oh, God, no, no we're no. not. Yeah. But he does the voice for the character Mikey, Mikey? the little the mm-hmm. boy. I didn't know it was Bruce Willis because I remember watching Look Who's Talking all the time when I was a kid, missing a whole bunch of the intricacies and the adult humor in it because I just see it, hey, it's a, it's a baby that talks. And when you watch it again, knowing that is Bruce Willis, it kind of takes on another very funny tone of, hey, yeah, he's really good at this. And it's a weird premise. If you think about Look Who's Talking, the main character has no effect on the story. The characters don't hear Bruce Willis. It's essentially a comedy about a single mother meeting a cab driver and falling in love. And meanwhile, you have another character performing Mystery Science Theater 3000 type commentary, (laughs) but nothing Mikey says matters. It's just jokes while you're watching an hour of another movie at the same time. But it flows so well. Oh, it's good. And then when part two came out, John Travolta's character goes from being a cab driver to a pilot. So that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) He got his license. I don't know. Part two is pretty awful. Three is really bad. That's With the dogs. The dogs, yeah. Is there a four? There was not. I feel like there was a TV show. I believe there was a TV show. And I know they've done a couple other Talking Baby TV shows as well. But I do believe there was one official Look Who's Talking TV show. Looking over his list, there's a lot that look almost interchangeable just by the titles. Tears of the Sun. And that sounds really interesting until Perfect like, Stranger. Perfect Stranger. Was that Hostage. Another? Like, seriously, these all could just be anyone. Anyone could have done these movies. That's one of those things I've said before, too, where Die Hard is such a good title. Die Hard. What does that even mean? Is it a battery? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tears of the Sun could be almost anything. Yeah. Hostage. If someone were to ask you, describe to me the movie Hostage, does anything specific come to mind? It's Someone is a hostage. Like horror movies of the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, a lot of them have had titles like The Cursed. The Curse. The Conjuring. The Return. What is It's so bland. And The Curse was one that came out recently, and its original title, I believe, was called Silver Fangs. How much better is that? Sounds actually kind of cool. Yeah, Silver Fangs is a way cooler title. Looking over the list, the one that hits me quickest just by doing a quick glance is Mercury Rising. Because again, oh, man. the title could be almost anything. You know, it's probably an action movie. And that movie is so cringe, though. It is so bad. All I can think is that someone watched Pet Cemetery and thought, you know what? Let's get that kid from Pet Cemetery before he ages out of that cute factor. Mercury Rising is one of those movies where Hollywood treated autism like superpowers. They still kind of do, but not as bad. They did very recently in The Predator, movies like Don't Say a Word and then Mercury Rising, where someone with some form of autism is the only person that knows the secret code that the bad guys want. But you watch these now, or even then, and they're just so cringy. They are bad, and Bruce Willis plays the typical cop protector character who... I'm the only one that can protect him. I'm going to knock off a few real quick. Surrogates is The Sims... In real life, kind of like that weird, gross sequence in the Gerard Butler movie Gamer. Except in Surrogates, nobody actually goes outside in their real bodies. They all possess robot versions of themselves that look younger and hotter. And so the real you is back at home sitting in a, in a lounger. <laughs> and then there's a ideal version of you walking around actually living life. And that sounds like probably not too far off from where we're going maybe one day. But Surrogates is not great. I like the idea. The high concept is cool. Watching Bruce Willis, you know, use this human body, his beaten, old, tired human body to try to solve this crime, it's a neat idea. 
but it's so stupid. Surrogates is not a good movie. They needed somebody like Christopher Nolan. Death Wish is, it's a remake of the Charles Bronson movie. It's okay. It's it's fine. If you need to watch an action movie, a studio-made, higher-budget action movie, something with at least a little more skill to it than these Redbox movies, sure, Death Wish, whatever. Perfect Stranger is the one with Halle Berry, where she thinks that her dead friend's boss, Bruce Willis, killed her. It's not good. Really bad plot twist. Who cares? I love Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing is a remake of the Japanese film Yojimbo, which was also remade as A Fistful of Dollars. It takes place in Prohibition era. Bruce Willis comes into this town, starts working for both of the rival gangs, pitting them against each other. It was made by Walter Hill, who did 48 Hours. I like Last Man Standing, but I cannot defend it as a good movie. If you want to watch a sort of Western, but with cars and guns, it's not exactly well made, but it's. <laughs> but I like Last Man Standing. I'm definitely crossing all of those off. Every time I hear Last Man Standing, I think of the Tim Allen sitcom, so it yeah, just kind of... That came later. I know it did, but it's like the title's kind of ruined just from that. I agree on the surrogates especially. Such an interesting concept, a great premise. It was just executed so badly. Surrogates has a great concept, but it needed to be made by someone with a more deft hand because you see the potential. The possibility that's, is so That's what good. hurts, right. When you see the possibility... And you just know that, okay, now I have to wait another 10 years before somebody tries this again. It's just so disappointing. The Whole Nine Yards was a huge hit. The sequel is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Was that The Whole Ten Yards? That was. No, I'm not kidding. The Whole Ten Yards was a sequel. (laughs) The Whole Nine Yards was amusing and people really seem to like it, except it's been forgotten. And if you watch it now... Kind of cringe? It's really sitcom-y, like pratfall sitcom-y. Whole Nine Yards is the movie where Bruce Willis plays a hitman who is living a happy suburban life, trying to be a normal person, and his neighbors realize who he is, and one of them sort of fangirls over him, and the other one, who's Matthew Perry, freaks the hell out. So every time Bruce Willis tries to be friends with him, he's just having like a nervous breakdown. And that's the (laughs) gag. That's the gag of the movie, that Bruce Willis is actually kind of a nice guy. It's pretty much forgotten, isn't it? Probably. I mean... The sequel didn't help. One movie that I did love quite a lot, actually, but I'm not going to keep, was Disney's The Kid. You love that movie? I thought it was so amusing and cute. Bruce Willis is visited by an eight-year-old version of himself. So the movie is him hanging out with his own... Child self. Child self. It's a cute movie. It's an innocent film. It made me laugh. And I am a wistful, nostalgic person. When you see a grown-up person having an opportunity to speak with their younger self, it's I don't know, it gets me. I like that. That would be kind of cool. I don't know if I would want to meet my eight-year-old child self. I'd have a lot more fun with, like, just going into high school and say, hey, here's a list of things you need to not do and list of things you need to do. Invest in Apple. Yes. Invest in Apple. Invest in Amazon. I just picture 15-year-old me saying, what the hell is a Google? (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact, the reason it's called Disney's The Kid is not just because they're putting the studio over the title. The actual title, the listed, credited, poster title is Disney's The Kid. The word Disney is in the title. Why? Because of the Charlie Chaplin estate. Charlie Chaplin (laughs) did a black and white silent film in the 20s called The Kid. And so the only reason it's called Disney's The Kid is because the Charlie Chaplin estate wouldn't let them call it The Kid. That's actually amazing that someone could tell Disney, no, you're going to change this. And Disney's like, okay. I'm not keeping it though, unfortunately. We're down to the last, I don't know, five or six or so. And these are, to me at least, the really, really good ones. The first I have to cross off, though, is Hudson Hawk. (laughs) Because it was a notorious failure. It's always on those worst movies of all times list. It's on the worst bombs of all time list. 
it was a massive, almost career-killing movie. Hudson Hawk was disastrous. Bruce Willis plays an art thief, and he gets caught up in this weird conspiracy where it turns out Leonardo da Vinci was hiding technology in his works of art. Within his art, he hid the way to actually turn lead into gold. And Bruce Willis gets caught up in it. And this sounds like a weird sci-fi-ish movie that you'd see today, but it's a slapstick comedy. Oh, with why would you do that? With characters named Butterfinger and Kit Kat. Why <laughs> would you ever do that? And it's not like Naked Gun slapstick, but the comedy exists outside reality. For example, a character drives off a cliff in a limo and the limo explodes midair as they do because, you know, when vehicles go off cliffs, they explode before they hit the ground, right? Duh, what yeah. kind of cars are you driving? And he survives. And when his friends say to him, how did you survive the explosion? He says, there's a sprinkler system in the back of the limo. Wow. And then, the, and then they say, how did you survive the impact? He goes, airbags. <laughs> that, I'm just that's kind the of kind of movie it is. Sitting here, it, it sounds like something like a 12-year-old would write thinking this is like a really cool, awesome idea. It's very Axe Cop. <laughs> if you know Axe Cop, you it's, understand the reference. Why? But why? no, but here's the thing. I love Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk is hilarious. Is it intended to be hilarious? It's, it is a comedy. It is a comedy on purpose. Okay. I think people couldn't get past how dumb it is. And then also, too, when a high-profile, expensive, star-driven movie bombs, especially in the pre-internet days, word-of-mouth bombs tended to stick in your minds. Even if you don't know about box office, you probably recognize the word Ishtar. And so we remember these. We remember some of these older movies. And Hudson Hawk is in that same boat. It is in the same camp as Ishtar. Like you said, word of mouth was Ishtar is bad. Don't watch it. It's something that's kind of permeated and stuck in the back of my mind, which is why I cannot remember Brief Calculus. Ishtar is actually pretty funny. It's not the terrible film that it's made out to be. It's dumb. And it's weird watching high profile actors like Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty doing a dumb movie. Hudson Hawk is often referred to as bad. People think it's a bad movie. I don't really know how to defend it without using examples of actual bad movies. Have you ever seen Leonard Part 6 with Bill Cosby? <laughs> There's a part in that movie where he is getting attacked by killer lobsters, and he's using a stick of butter like to ward them off. He's like, it's butter! And if the idea of that is at least somewhat amusing, then you'll probably like Hudson Hawk. But man, I like it. I really, really do. I'm not keeping it. 16 Blocks is another example of a simple concept that I really, really respect. I like the idea of a cop just trying to get one person 16 blocks. It's almost a real-time movie. He has two hours to get somebody from A to B, and everyone is trying to stop him. And that's it. It's a very simple concept. I like the idea of it, but Richard Donner was the director. He did the original Superman. In his later career, he did boring movies that didn't know how to end. Mm -hmm. So I'm crossing off 16 blocks. I have to cross off Sin City as well. Oh, Sin really? City is wow. yeah that's no kind of, that's kind of surprising I thought that's one that you would like be grabbing onto and not letting go okay so here's the thing Sin City when it came out was screaming from the rooftops all caps oh my god this is incredible I loved Sin City so much I love the cast I love the look of the film Mickey it's, Rourke is so cool in it it shot so well here's the rub when it came out it was niche it was this crazy cool experiment of there are no real sets and almost no real props. The thing is, every single movie is made that way now. Stylistically, with the black and white and then the uses of color, like the Band-Aids and the orange blood, things like that, it looks amazing. It is a visually creative film. I 100%, no reservations, recommend Sin City to anyone who hasn't seen it. If you have not seen Sin City, watch it. Part 2, one of the worst movies ever made. 
But part one, yeah, it is incredible. My issue is that I've gone back to rewatch it recently, and the way it's shot, while incredible, isn't as impressive now. And so when I revisit it now, I have to find more in the film, the characters, the story. It just doesn't really click anymore. It feels like the movie should be almost like an hour shorter. Wow. I mean, I thought Sin City was going to be like your thing. Seriously. I understand that it's an amazing movie. It wasn't one I myself really liked because I didn't like any of the characters. But I love how it was shot. There are so many cool moments. I hate sounding negative about it. I do. There was a period of about five years after it came out where it was the go-to example. It was the movie where I would tell anybody to watch it, watch it, watch it. But time has passed. It's just not the same anymore. There were movies with exciting car chases in the 70s, and you watch them now, and they're quaint. And that's no fault of their own. And I will reiterate, 100% recommend you watch Sin City if you haven't seen it. It is a cool-looking, stylistically impressive film. There is stuff to like. It just doesn't mean anything to me anymore, if that makes sense. That's sad, but it's true. I'm crossing it off. But yeah, it's still surprising to me that you're knocking it off so easily. All right, let me just ask this. What do you think of Armageddon? (laughs) okay i think the laughter sort of gives away how (laughs) i feel about armageddon that came out what 99 2000 98 okay 98 when i think of armageddon i think of mostly the aerosmith song that they still play i don't want to miss a thing i think of a dumb popcorn summer action movie that you watch with your brain turned off and it's enjoyable in that aspect it's bad in certain spots but it makes you forget how stupid it is because of how driven it is and how funny it is in parts that are intending to be funny They look like they're kind of having a good time in the movie. It's entertaining. Yeah, that's the key word right there. Capital E, entertaining. Armageddon is not high art. It's not great. Not every movie has to be high art, though. Yeah, it's so watchable. That's a movie where if it's on TV, it doesn't matter at what point in the film it's at. You can sit down and watch a half hour of it. It is a little bit too long, and I hate, to this day, the animal cracker scene. The internet has kind of forgotten about it. It used to be mocked endlessly. The scene where Ben Affleck is using animal crackers along Liv Tyler's stomach, and it's supposed to be sweet, I guess. It It, looks weird. I do like in Armageddon how Michael Bay is a little restrained. It still has this weird slow motion and sunlight coming through an American flag, some of the tropes that Michael Bay has become known for, but it's not as frantic. It's not as hectic. The signs are still there, but it's not crazy Michael Bay. You can tell what things are happening. It's early Michael Bay still. He He hasn't gone full Bay. The weird humor, he has a very strange sense of humor. It's still there, like all the pedophile jokes with Steve Buscemi's Uh, character. Yeah, Armageddon, yeah, it holds up. It's still wildly entertaining. I am hesitant. Uh, I don't want to keep Armageddon and cross off Looper. I would feel really stupid about that. But the thing is, is that I would rather watch Armageddon than Looper. I'm going to hold on to Armageddon for now, just because it is capital E, like you said, entertaining. It's a fun movie. Not high art, but not every movie has to be. Yeah. We're down to the last five on the list, and three of them I'm going to group together. Last Boy Scout, Death Becomes Her, and Color of Night. Tara, would you keep any of those? I'm actually hesitating on one of them, yeah. Okay, my guess is Death Becomes Her. Yes. Okay, all right, let's talk about the other two real quick then. (laughs) Color of Night is ridiculously terrible in a good way. It's one of those trashy, bad, erotic thrillers that were ripping off the success of Basic Instinct. The sex content is strong. (laughs) There is a lot of sex in The Color of Night. It's a ridiculous trash movie. When I use trash to describe a movie, I often say that I love trash movies. I do. I love movies that are just 
not necessarily caring about being smart about what they're doing. <laughs> I just love I love dumb tra- movies. So, sometimes they're dumb. I just love trash movies. Color of Night is so trashy. Bruce Willis plays a behaviorist, so basically a, like a psychiatrist, I guess. And his psychiatrist friend is murdered, so he takes over his friend's group therapy session. One's a kleptomaniac, one's a sexaholic. One of them has a, a gender identity crisis. And then at the same time, he meets this super young, attractive woman. Of course. They're of course. super young. And he starts to have an affair with her. Spoiler alert, she turns out to be one of the boys in the group therapy sessions. Dun, dun, dun. But the thing is, is that the makeup on her to turn her into a boy is not convincing in any way. <laughs> there are some movies where you don't see the twist coming. This one, you're watching it and the whole time saying to yourself, that's her, right? The plot twist is ruined from the very start. <laughs> If that gives you an idea of how trashy this movie is. But I love Color of Night. I cannot and will not say that it's good. It's a garbage fire. It's so dumb. (laughs) It's a dumpster fire. You can't help but watching a wow. That is amazingly bad. It's a sexy, bonkers, stupid movie. And I love it. I can't keep it. It's not good. (laughs) But I love it. I love Color of Night. I'm also going to cross that off and The Last Boy Scout as well. I I have to cross off Last Boy Scout too. It's badass though. It's a perfect early 90s badass movie. Good name. Last Boy Scout is one of the perfect examples of what a dumb early 90s action movie was like Tango and Cash, which I think may have actually been 89, but that's beside the point. (laughs) It's around the same time. Yeah, yeah. Stupid fun, but it's fun. Stupid fun, nonsense, the kind of movie where Somebody can, you know, shoot a bunch of bad guys and then put an arm around a girl and walk off into the distance as if they don't have to explain it to anybody. We don't because we're the hero and we don't have to, you know, worry There's about There's so much paperwork. <laughs> but that, That's what they don't show yeah. in pretty much all these movies that we have to explain where every single bullet goes. No, we're going to walk off into the sun so we'll be fine. If you like Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Long Kiss, Good Night, any early 90s or late 80s Stallone stuff like Cobra, there is no reason that you would not like The Last Boy Scout. But if you like that stuff, Last Boy Scout is cool. Let me just ask real quick, since we haven't talked about it, we've talked about all these movies, but we haven't really talked about Bruce Willis himself, about what made him famous, about why he's so charming and likable. And Death Becomes Her really is kind of what triggered that in my mind, because he is so frantic and almost cast against type. Because that movie came out after the Die Hard 1 and 2, I think, right? Yeah, it was after Die Hard 1 and 2. Death Becomes Her, I believe, was 92. The special effects were a very big deal. Robert Zemeckis did Death Becomes Her, and I think I mentioned before in one of our shows, people don't realize how Robert Zemeckis pushes the line with effects with every one of his movies. He doesn't really get credit for it, but if you watch Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, he does so much with special effects that change the industry, and no one really gives his films credit for that. And Death Becomes Her is one of those ones where even the fat suit, in the beginning, Goldie Hawn wears a fat suit. We had never seen one like that before. We're used to it now with the clumps, you know, Nutty Professor. Mm -hmm. But back then in 92, we had never seen anything like that where wow, that's Goldie Hawn? How is that even possible? Now it's just common. It's whatever. But back then, we'd never seen that before. Or when she gets shot in the stomach and turns around and you can see the hole in her stomach. Yes. That was mind-blowing. Like, oh my, how did they do that? Yeah. And we watch it now with Meryl Streep's head turned around and it looks super cartoony. But back then, it was face-slapping, mouth agape, incredible. I'd say some of the effects don't hold up entirely well, but... Yeah, they really don't because it's been 30 years. For the time, it was still amazing. Even now you can kind of watch it and go, okay, part of you still sees the giant hole in her or her head turned around and you're like, wait a minute, how did they do that? Yeah, it was incredible. 
And Bruce Willis, man, nerdy, nervous. He's so nervous and just beat around the whole movie. He's a little nerd the entire movie. A pushover. The opposite of what you expect from Bruce Willis at this point. And he is so... Good. Watchable and charming. Relatable. Skittish. And it's so amusing. He's got this little ugly mustache and he's got like balding hair, if I remember right. He seems like he's on the verge of crying the entire movie. Precisely. He is not playing Bruce Willis at all. I like Death Becomes Her and I think it is one of the best examples of Bruce Willis being a good actor. No one really ever talks about him being a good actor. And and in fact, they probably talk about him being a bad actor, especially recently. And Death Becomes Her, he is so good at it. The idea is that you get this little bottle and you drink it and you become immortal. Well, you're supposed to only take a drop at a time so you stay young, but they overdo it. Yes. The problem with immortality doesn't mean indestructibility. So if you do get hurt, you're stuck with your body forever. They shatter at the end and their heads are lying on the ground, (laughs) wondering, what are we going to do now? And seeing this as a kid was rather traumatizing. (laughs) It was. It was a very boundary-pushing PG-13. Dark and sexual. And as a young boy, when this movie came out... you're like, whoa. It's a comedy, but it's kind of a dark comedy. Oh, it's not kind of. It is a dark comedy. I think the end of the movie, it's them at his funeral where he lived like 20 years, 30 years and had a family and grandkids and did all the other stuff. That line always stuck with me. At his funeral, the preacher says, for him, life began at 40. And as I'm aging, that that really sticks with me. All right. Well, I am... I am hesitant on Death Becomes Her just for now. But he's he's actually acting. He's not playing one of the usual personas we see. Yeah, he's not the lead role, but he is the best in that movie. I'm going to keep it, I hesitate to say entirely for now, but I'm kind of leaning on keeping it on Well, the we're at list. the end, and I don't yeah. know what you have left, but the two we haven't talked about, and I guess spoilers because I'm definitely keeping them, are... 12 Monkeys, and The Fifth Element. An amazing movie from start to finish. Everything in that movie is great. I know people who hate sci-fi and hate everything about the entire genre of space stuff. Mm -hmm. And they love The Fifth Element. Fifth Element is so, so good. Everyone knows Lilo Dallas Multipass. Yes. It Um, it spawned a million different cosplays and different costumes and all kinds of great things for people with that. When I saw The Fifth Element, I was the film critic for my high school newspaper, (laughs) and I hated it. I hated it so much. I did. I thought it was stupid as hell. I thought that the satellite on the back of a cockroach was so dumb. I thought the acting was over the top, and I wrote a bad review being the era that it was. I saw every movie multiple times, no matter what I thought about it. I saw everything. (laughs) More than once. So I went back and saw it again, and I kind of liked it. And then I went back and I saw it again. So over the course of this weekend, I changed my mind on the film, and I rewrote my review. Now all the stuff that I hated before, I just love. I think that it is a amazingly put together, visually impressive. Even the music by Eric Serra, I love that soundtrack so much. The acting is over the top. I look up to Gary Oldman in that movie. Not as as a character, but as an actor. Like the way he performs that sort of Kentucky fried space villain. I hate to say it, given the topic of this episode. The weakest link probably in the entire movie is Bruce Willis. Well, that's because he plays the the straight guy, the the not the over the top flamboyant. He's the straight man. So his role is just to react to everyone else. And that kind of sucks for a main character. It works so well when everyone else around you is so over the top. We need someone who isn't also all over the top just mashing off each yeah, other. Yeah, he is just pulled along the whole time. And even though he's the hero of the movie, he never meets the villain of the movie. They never interact. Not once. There's one scene where he goes out a door just as Gary Oldman comes through another door. Mm-hmm. And that's it. 
the hero of your movie never meets the villain. He's but, not responsible for defeating the villain. But Gary Oldman's not the full villain. He's just part of the No, bad I know, but still, it's so weird. Like, that would be like Die Hard and John McClane never meets Hans Gruber, and then somebody else kills Hans Gruber, and he still gets the girl at the end. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But I, I love the movie. It is just well thought out. The characters are fun. Everyone's having a great time. Chris Tucker's just if almost have, annoying. Some people wouldn't say almost, but it depends on your tolerance for over-the-top characters and style and acting. Mm-hmm. It is, I hate to say dumb on purpose, because it's not intentionally dumb. I just feel that people would interpret a lot of stuff as dumb. There's really only one joke in the whole movie where I roll my eyes, and that's where the deaf celebrity rolls the pool balls to Bruce Willis oh, instead of the right. gun. Uh, like, okay, that that was dumb. If you can recognize that this is a French comedy, basically, it's very enjoyable. I love the style, the costumes. The set design is amazing. Everything with this movie screams out future, but fun future. Kind of like the opposite of the Prometheus. World bu- oh, Don't mention Prometheus. <laughs> the world building... You understand so cool. the situations, the way they live, the food, the cigarettes. Like, you see these cigarettes that are three-quarters filter. It's hilarious. Yes. The, the scenes with the taxis, the flying cars. You have one is... point on your license. Yes. They have product placement with McDonald's, and it's one of the few movies where it makes sense. It's a happy, enjoyable, Bizarre, I didn't think it's 90-minute movie. It's just fun from start to finish. It is a bundle of energy and creativity. Fifth Element is amazing. The very opening of the movie before we get to all the insanity where it's got the aliens coming down to Earth and taking away the elements and saying, Aziz, light. Yeah, we'll be back. Kind of brings to light like Brandon Fraser's The Mummy and then we jump ahead to the future and you're like, this looks so awesome. I don't get how it ties into the first part. I don't care. Look at the taxi. Some have complained about when they go to the temple at the end, the one alien that got trapped, the big robot alien that Mm -hmm. got trapped isn't there. And who cares? And some people have a problem with the evil planet not really being explained or why it looks like iodine is coming down Gary Oldman's forehead when he's on the phone with the evil planet. I don't care. It's weird for weird's sake, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, this is one of those movies where there's little plot holes, and I really don't care. Well, I don't even know that they're plot holes. To me, it's just kind of like not showing people going to the bathroom. There are things that don't have to be explained. Like when the ship is being prepared for launch and you have a bunch of crew members using flamethrowers to like burn little bugs off the ship. They don't explain what those are. The world is implied and you can figure out what's going on. They don't need to explain everything to you. I like it. I'm keeping the fifth element. Oh, yeah. It's just no question about it. Yeah, 100%. I already said I'm keeping 12 monkeys. What do you think about 12 monkeys? It's good. I love 12 monkeys, but I I like the look on your face right now. (laughs) No. No. Have you watched it during the pandemic though? No. It's Oh, watching it now after the last two years that we've been through? Because 12 Monkeys is about a world ravaged by a virus, and they send a convict back in time to try to find out the source, to try to find the people who released it. it. Well, not stop it, because they can't, in their version, they can't change the past. It's kind of like Avengers time travel logic, like it's already happened. Well, then why would you send him back to find out? They're going back to try to find out where it came from so they can figure out how to stop it in their time. They're not trying to go back in time on this mission to change their future because... Gotcha, right, right. I forgot that part, but... Yeah, it's already established. There's so many little time travel little loops where he messes up. He thinks he has the right person and it's the wrong person yeah, and something else entirely. Yeah, he keeps getting entirely. sucked back. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time travel movie. It's a great concept, but compared to like Armageddon or Death Becomes, where those no. are at least entertaining. I'll, I'll <laughs> I like 12 Monkeys, but I don't know if it is Bruce Willis's best role or at least a role where... 
I enjoy it. Oh, he's so good in it, he's though. He's good in it, though, but he I'm He plays gonna... disheveled, lost, manic. I don't want to say crazy person because he's confused by the trauma of time travel. I... And he, he even gets put in an asylum in the movie and he yes. meets Brad Pitt. 12 Monkeys is good, especially after the past two years we've had with just COVID and crap. But I don't know if I want to sit down and watch 12 Monkeys on repeat. Okay. Well, I like 12 Monkeys. The accordion soundtrack, like the soundtrack is mostly accordion. It's very creepy. The ending kind of like, oh, he's a little kid seeing his future self do this. I'm like, that just... So spoilers, but there is an ending to the film that is a twist, but the plot twist was telegraphed way early. It's kind of obvious. And ultimately, the twist doesn't matter. It doesn't, but it just kind of felt almost out of place. What I like with 12 Monkeys, though, is there's a flaw to his character. It's not somebody who is Bruce Willis standing up, big shoulders, going back in time on this mission. He goes back and he is scrambled in his brain. He barely understands what's going on. He is overwhelmed by fresh air. He's completely lost as a person. I mean, I I don't know. I think it's great. In Fifth Element, he isn't quite the hero either. I mean, we know he's like the... In Fifth Element, he is basically sighing the whole time as if he's going... Uh, I guess I'll, I guess I'll go do this. <laughs> <laughs> but that fits with the movie. It fits, Arm- and it's good. Armageddon, he's kind of borderline, hey, look, I'm awesome, good guy. I'm going to do the heroic sacrifice He's thing. in charge in Armageddon. He's in charge. My only problem at all with 12 Monkeys, and it's minor, is that of course he has to have a love interest. It's kind of like Starman. It's kind of like the relationship in Starman. But at least in Starman, you believe that, that Karen Allen is falling in love with this alien who looks exactly like her dead husband. But in this, I don't buy the romance at all. We don't need it. It was completely unnecessary. Yeah. I love 12 Monkeys. I think it is great. I think it's great. I'll use the G word. I do like 12 Monkeys, but I'm just not sure if I want to keep it compared to another fun movie. Okay. So you'd rather have a a good time. You're thinking about the viewing experience. Yeah. I mean, 12 Monkeys is great, but if we did, say, a, a virus outbreak episode, Contagion is a great movie, but I wouldn't want to sit there and watch Contagion over and over again. Maybe this is me, and maybe it's my paranoid, worrisome self, but I've watched Contagion like four times during the pandemic. Other than the two that I said I'm saving, I still have Death Becomes Her, Looper, and Armageddon, so I can only save one of those. Honestly, that's a tough choice. If I use Terra Logic and say, what would I rather watch right now? I would say Armageddon. If I were to say, what movie is Bruce Willis the best in? That's Death Becomes Her. And if I were to say which one is the best movie, that's Looper. So this is tough. I don't know what to say. Well, I'm down to four. So you only have one to eliminate? Yeah. What do you have left? I've got Armageddon, 12 Monkeys, Fifth Element, and Death Becomes Her. Well, I feel like I know exactly which one you're crossing off. I feel like you're going to cross off 12 Monkeys and keep Armageddon. Between, oh, okay, so here's, uh, Looper and 12 Monkeys you're both debating on, right? 12 Monkeys and Fifth Element are 100%. Okay. It's between Death Becomes Her, Armageddon, and Looper as my final film. Even though Looper is the better movie, this is a Bruce Willis-themed episode, I am going to go with the movie that he is the best in. I would actually pick Looper or Armageddon over Death Becomes Her, but this is a Bruce Willis episode. He is the best in that. So I'm crossing off Looper and Armageddon. Wow. I'm going to break your heart on this and just throw away the monkeys. Well, no, I already knew you were going to cross that off. All right, Tara, then, what are your three? Armageddon, The Fifth Element, and Death Becomes Her. All right. As for me, now playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are Death Becomes Her, The Fifth Element, and Twelve Monkeys. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas or Instagram at Valley West Cinemas underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please visit 
patreon.com slash Valley West Cinemas podcast. And of course, please rate and review wherever you listen. It helps us a bunch. I'm your host, Aaron. I was joined today by Tara. Thank you for listening.